morning. Back in the day, I used to do youth ministry. Uh, one of the games that we would play with the students from time to time, I would uh, gather baby pictures of all the leaders and the interns, and the students would have to guess uh, which baby picture belonged to which leader. And I remember one year, there's like 16 baby pictures up on this PowerPoint slide. Uh, Mine is in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, And my daughter, Abby, she's maybe four years old at this time, uh, she points to my baby picture and she says, Look, Daddy, it's Asher, referring to her younger brother. Well, if you would take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 6. Here at First Baptist Church, we've been slowly making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and currently we find ourselves in what's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, a sermon in which Jesus teaches his disciples what it means to be a disciple, what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And last time you'll remember that we covered that beginning section in which Jesus contrasts disciples and non-disciples, through a series of beatitudes and woes. For example, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. And we talked last time about how Jesus wasn't just referring to physical circumstances like poverty and hunger and weeping, but that he was primarily speaking in spiritual metaphors— And so he's not just referring to economic poverty, but primarily a spiritual poverty, being poor in spirit, knowing and understanding your desperate need for God versus a sense of fullness and satisfaction and richness in this life that would cause you to reject God. I don't need him. Well, blessed are you who are poor in that way, but woe to you who are rich. Now, that's a tough passage. Not so much tough to understand, but just tough to truly apply. Because in it, Jesus presents this value system that's completely contrary to the world. All the things that the world chases after, whether it's riches or fullness or laughter or reputation, Jesus pronounces woes upon those very things to the extent that they would draw one away from God. And instead, he exalts what the world would look down upon, right, if those things would lead you to God. And so we as believers, we're, we're challenged to really examine our fundamental values. Are they in line with the kingdom of God? Is what we prioritize and what we exalt and what we pursue after, is it characteristic of the kingdom of God, or are we taking too many cues from the world and the culture around us? Well, as challenging as those beatitudes and woes are, it's not like Jesus goes any easier on us in this next section. I mean, our passage this morning, I think it's one of the most challenging teachings in the entire New Testament. In the beatitudes and the woes, Jesus gives us a framework to rightly think about ourselves in relation to God. And in our passage for today, Jesus is going to give us a framework to rightly think about our relationships with other people. 
In particular, people who are opposed to us, our enemies. It really doesn't get any more challenging than this. And you get a sense of that even in how Jesus starts off the passage. Look at what he says there. I say to you who hear. Look, the Holy Spirit's got to give you ears to hear in order for this passage to make any sense. He who has ears, let him hear. Because the commands that Jesus is giving us here, they're they're so different from how our natural selves would operate. So let's start by just reading the text. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. And then we're going to talk about what it means and how we can apply it to our lives. Uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. uh, Hear the word of the Lord. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Father in heaven, please help us now as we look to your word. We confess that we are an easily distracted people. And so we pray that you would allow us to stay focused in this hour, that our minds, not, minds might not wander with the cares of this world, but that we would intently listen as you speak through your word. We ask that you would grant to us ears to hear, that we would not in our pride think that we've already got everything figured out or dismiss this passage as being irrelevant to us, but that we would in true humility seek your grace to apply this difficult teaching to our lives. We pray for those in this room who do not know you, that they would see the love that you have displayed for your enemies through your Son, and that you would thus turn their hearts towards yourself. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tough passage here, so let's get right to work. Because I want to get, go through this text uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to start by looking at the commands, uh, the commands themselves. Like, what is Jesus teaching us? What, what, what are we as disciples to do? Uh, then we're going to look at some illustrations that Jesus gives. What does it look like to practically live these commands out? Then we'll look at some contrasts that Jesus sets up. Like, this is how living out these commands is going to differentiate you from the world. And then we'll finish by looking at the motive. Why ought we to live out these commands? So if you're taking notes, uh, those are our four points for this morning. The commands, the illustrations, the contrasts, and the motive. So first let's start by looking at the commands themselves in verses 27 and 28. 
And then you'll see that there's four of them there. Right? Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Love your enemies, right? That's the first command right there. You hear that, uh, maybe for some of you, uh, there's a, a specific person that comes to mind immediately as your enemy. Well, there's that backstabbing coworker who is always all too willing to take the credit for everything that you do. There's that unbearable boss, right, whose goal in life seems to be uh, to make your life as miserable as possible. Uh, there is that grouchy aunt, right, who ruined your family's Thanksgiving dinner with her just general miserableness. Or maybe it's the dude on West End Avenue who took your parking spot this morning, cut you off. And certainly we could apply the passages, uh, the principles of this passage uh, to any of those situations. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But I want you to remember the original context. Right? Not only of this particular phrase, love your enemies, but also of this entire section. Right? Remember what came exactly before it. Uh, Jesus just pronounced the Beatitudes and the Woes. Right? And you remember they came in four pairs, and the last pair was specifically about people who would fall into this category of enemies. Look at verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And so blessed are you when people hate you. And now he says, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Right? Same word. You see the connection. And I think that connection is even clearer in Matthew's recording of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies. Well, who are those enemies? Pray for those who persecute you. Those who persecute you are those enemies. And so when Jesus is talking about enemies in this sermon, yes, the principles can be applied to your coworker and to your boss and uh, your aunt and that dude who took your parking spot this morning. But remember, primarily... Jesus is talking about enemies who would hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He's primarily referring to those who persecute you for being a Christian, for being a follower of Jesus. And for the disciples of Jesus, remember the original audience, for them, right? Like this is really real. Let's consider the 11 non-Judas apostles who are listening to this sermon live and in person. Well, church history tells us that 10 of those 11 would be martyred. And so for 10 of the 11 of them, this sermon is as applicable as it could possibly be like they would literally die at the hands of their enemies. And so Jesus is preparing them for how to deal with such enemies. And the way to deal with such enemies is to love them. Love your enemies. Now, as radical as that might sound to our ears, it might have even sounded more radical back then because the commonly accepted, like, prevailing wisdom of the day was the exact opposite. If you're familiar with Matthew's Sermon on the Mount, you'll know that there, right, several times Jesus quotes the teaching of the the Pharisees and the Jewish religious leaders 
Well, listen to this, Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, as in this is the prevailing wisdom of the day. This is what the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are teaching you all. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The Jewish teachers took the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself and and they twisted it by saying, well, you are only to love your neighbor. And so anyone who doesn't fall into that category of neighbor, well, that's your enemy and you should hate them. Love Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? That was the commonly accepted religious teaching of the day. And if we're honest... That kind of appeals to our natural selves, doesn't it? Like our instinctive reaction to an enemy, right? Someone who would be an antagonist in our lives, someone who hates us and reviles us. Well, it's to revile them back, to hate them back, right? Our natural sinful instinct is one of vindictiveness and vengeance. Like, I'll show them. But now here comes Jesus, And against that prevailing cultural wisdom of the day of hate your enemies. And against the natural inclinations of our sinful hearts to hate our enemies. Well, here's Jesus saying, but I say to you, love your enemies. Would have been a shocking statement back then. And it is still a shocking statement to our ears 2,000 years later. But what does that even mean? To love your enemy. I think we ought to think about this because that, that word love, well, it, it can take on so many different meanings in our vernacular. You think about our culture's depiction and understanding of love. Just think of all the, the love stories and, and the romantic comedies and all that. Well, it's primarily referring to a feeling, right? This kind of warm, sentimental emotion of the heart that's largely viewed as being outside of our control. And so people can fall in love and people can fall out of love, right? Just as quickly because love is viewed as this emotionally driven feeling that's as fickle and as wavering as our emotions themselves. It's not just romantic love that's portrayed that way by our culture. The love that we have for our friends, the love that we have for our family, right? They're all primarily based on how we feel about the object of our love. And so our love for someone is only as strong as how we feel about the person. But if that's our definition of love, well, how in the world can Jesus command us to love our enemies? It's like borderline impossible. Like, am I supposed to generate some warm, fuzzy feeling in my heart about the person who hates me? The New Testament presents love primarily from a different angle. The way in which the Bible describes love, the focus is much more on what it does than how it feels. On the willingness to serve that person and do good to them and the actions that then reflect that, as opposed to just how love makes you feel, these underlying feelings, these emotions. So for example, you go to the love chapter of the New Testament— 1 Corinthians 13, it's all about what love does. The entire chapter is full of action verbs that tells us what love does as opposed to how love makes you feel. 
love, right, biblical love, is always tied to actions. Suppose I'm somewhere uptown and I'm, I'm, I'm driving home in my car and, and it's pouring rain. And I see Frank and he's walking home. He's got both arms full of groceries. He's got no umbrella and no poncho, no nothing. He's just getting pelted by the rain. And I pull over. Hey, Frank, love you, man. And I drive off. Well, have I really loved him? You get my point, right? Love should be tied to actions. And we see that here in our passage, right? Let someone hear Jesus say, hey, love your enemies. And they're like, yeah, I love my enemies right here in my heart. I love my enemies. Jesus tells us exactly what it looks like to love our enemies. And so we can think of these commands in verses 27 and 28, not so much as like four separate commands, but I think there's one overarching command, right? Love your enemies. And then there's three sub-commands that demonstrate what that overarching command looks like. And so what does it look like to love your enemy? Well, sub-command number one, do good to them. If you're not willing to do good to them, it doesn't really matter about what you say, about how you feel. You're not loving them. Get in the car, Frank. Let me drive you home. And this is a concept of doing good as an expression of loving your enemy. That goes all the way back to the Old Testament, right? This goes all the way back to the Mosaic Law. Because in Exodus 23, it says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you, right? This is your enemy. Lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Your enemy struggling on the side of the road. Hey, sorry about your donkey, dude. Love you, though. Right? That's not going to pass for loving your enemy. You've got to, in the words of Jesus, you've got to do good to those who hate you if you're really going to love them. And so love your enemies by actively doing them good, by rescuing their donkey, regardless of how they might treat you. But Jesus isn't done. And look at subcommand number two. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And bless those who curse you. They curse you. Right? Remember the Beatitudes. Remember verse 22. They spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. What do you do in response? Well, I'll tell you what our natural sinful hearts want to do. We want to curse them in response. We want to fight fire with fire. We want to retaliate in full force. But Jesus won't allow that. Instead, we're to bless them. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word eulogy. You're to look for the best in that person. You're to speak highly to them and highly about them, regardless of what they have to say about you. And then one more just for good measure here. One more way in which our love for our enemies is to be practically manifest. Subcommand number three, pray for those who abuse you. I'm going to talk about like imprecatory prayers here. I pray that they would get struck by a lightning bolt. No, this is like prayers of blessing or prayers of goodwill. And so now we're going past the kind of uh, surface, the, the outward motions, the words 
we're going straight to the heart. You can do good things for them, check. You can bless them with your words, check. But maybe you can fake those things. Maybe you can kind of go through the motions there. But you want to know what's really going on in someone's heart? Well, you look at their prayer life. So if you really want to love your enemies, you really want to love those who are persecuting you and abusing you and reviling you, well, pray for them. And pray for their well-being. Pray for their salvation. Pray that God would grant to them genuine repentance. Like Jesus prayed for those who crucified him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Like Stephen, how he loved those who stoned him by praying for them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In the same way, we are called to love those who abuse us by praying for them. Now let's bring this kind of down to our level and think about how we might apply these things to our own lives. And the application here for us, the principle that we're going to use is basically an argument from the greater to the lesser. Here's what I mean by that. Whoever your enemy is, you might be thinking of a specific person right now, whoever your enemy is, whether it's someone who openly persecutes you for your faith and hates you because you're a Christian, or more broadly and generally, just some antagonist in your life, whether it be a coworker or a boss or a family member, whoever it may be, here's the thing. I assume that as miserable as they might be making your life, that they're not going to kill you. Praise God, we live in a society in which persecution unto death is the rare exception rather than the norm. But remember, with these disciples that Jesus is speaking to, well, as he would later tell them, some of them will be put to death. For some of them, the very enemies that they're called to love would violently take their lives. And yet Jesus still calls them to resist the natural inclination to return evil for evil, to get revenge, to be vindictive, whether that be through their actions or their words or just even harboring bitterness and resentment in their hearts. And instead, Jesus calls them to love them and to do good to them and to bless them and to pray for them. Friends, if these disciples are called to love their enemies who would kill them, and if Christians throughout the centuries who have been martyred and our brothers and sisters, even today, who are being put to death, well, if they can obey this call to love the very enemies who are taking their lives, then arguing from the greater to the lesser, surely you and I can do the same facing much less dire consequences. Love your enemies. And if that's something that, like, even now, you're convicted of, like your unlovingness, maybe your spirit of vengeance or retaliation or bitterness towards your enemy, whoever that may be, well, a good starting point might be the very last thing that Jesus says here. Pray for those who abuse you. And so that person at work or, or that family member who mocks you for your faith, that horrible neighbor that you're just really tempted to hate, 
well, can you commit to praying for them? Genuinely praying that God would bless them and show favor to them, that God would save their soul, bring them to true repentance. Genuinely asking that God would give you this true love for them that would express itself in doing good to them and blessing them even when they revile you. It's often said, and I think it's quite true, it's awful hard to hate the person you're genuinely praying for. And so perhaps for for some of us, loving our enemy can just start with committing to pray for them. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. So that's the command itself. It's point number one. That brings us to point number two of our outline. Some illustrations. Jesus gives us a few illustrations of putting these principles into practice. What does it look like in some very specific situations in which people would show themselves to be our enemies? What does it look like to love them? Verse 29. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Even if you've never read a page of the Bible in your life, you've probably heard that phrase, right? To turn the other cheek. What exactly does it mean, though? Because some have taken this to mean that, well, Christians should be pacifists, that disciples should just stand there if they're being physically attacked. But I think that's missing the point entirely. That's not what this is saying. And I think this becomes clear when we compare what Jesus says here to what he says in a very similar context as recorded by Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.39 But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Right there it's specified, we're talking about the right cheek. You remember from a couple of weeks ago, right? Little League Baseball, left hand, right hand, right? Those kinds of details matter. Well, left cheek, right cheek, those kind of details matter. Adam, if I could borrow you for just a moment here. I am right-handed, and it is assumed that most people are right-handed. Right? That's why Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, right, it is assumed that most people are functionally right-handed. Now, if Adam is my enemy, and I am trying to physically injure him, right, and I am going to hit him in the face, Adam, which cheek am I going to hit? That is your, that is your left cheek. Right? Unless I'm doing some kind of like fancy, you know. <laughs> I'm going to hit him on the left cheek if I'm trying to injure him. Now, if I am hitting him on the right cheek, how am I hitting him? I am backhanded slapping him. Thank you, Adam. (laughs) Give it up for Adam Galter, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Now, in the Jewish culture back then, and this is still true in our culture as well, a backhanded slap is not so much intended to injure as to insult and degrade. And so in our vernacular, right, in English, we would say that if someone does something or says something that's an insult, we would say, well, that's a slap in the face. 
It's not referring to physical violence. It's instead referring to the insulting and degrading nature of what was just done or said. And so what Jesus is likely referring to here when he refers to being struck on the cheek is an insult. And so his point is that when you're insulted by your enemy, and again, in the context, right, we're primarily talking about being insulted and shamed on account of the Son of Man. Well, if that happens, you metaphorically turn the other cheek as well. You offer them the other cheek. You let them keep insulting you on account of Jesus. You you don't retaliate with an insult of your own. You don't fire back with nasty words. You don't seek revenge. Just patiently bear it, and you keep loving them. You keep doing them good. You keep blessing them. You keep praying for them. And so, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, it's not a literal command. And we know it's not a literal command because, remember, Jesus was struck in his face during his trial, but he doesn't offer the other cheek. Right here, strike this one too. But he does offer the other cheek metaphorically and that he doesn't seek vengeance. He doesn't return evil for evil. He doesn't return insult for insult. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And to believer, follower of Jesus, when you're humiliated, when you're shamed, when you're disgraced, when you're insulted by your enemy on account of the Son of Man, don't return evil for evil. Keep loving them, even as Jesus did by metaphorically turning the other cheek. It's the first illustration. And second, we have an illustration about clothing. Look at the second half of verse 29. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Back then, people would typically wear two layers, right? Your, your tunic was your undergarment and your cloak was your outer garment. And the illustration here is that if someone takes your outer garment and you're down to your tunic, and remember the, the primary context here is being persecuted on account of the Son of Man, well, if they take your stuff... Your spirit should not be one of retaliation or vengeance or I'm going to get even. It should be one of, hey, listen, you can take my tunic too. Now again, this is not meant to be literal. Let's all the disciples be walking around naked. This is just saying that disciples should be willing to forego their stuff in love for enemies. This isn't saying that disciples shouldn't steward their possessions well. This isn't promoting anarchy. This isn't saying anything about the government's proper role in preventing crimes like theft and extortion. Jesus is just illustrating a point that your love for people should exceed your love for stuff. I remember back then, right? People don't have these like full wardrobes and closets with, you know, 20 tunics and 20 overcoats and whatever. Most people probably had maybe one or two tunics and one cloak, something like that. So then taking your cloak, that's a big deal. And then you giving away your tunic on top of that, that's a really big deal. But again, Jesus is illustrating the extent to which you should be willing to go in order to love your enemies. Disciples shouldn't be so focused on their stuff 
and their material possessions, that a fixation on those things would hinder you from truly loving your enemies. Don't worry about your stuff. Worry about loving them and doing them good. And in verse 30, Jesus expands the illustration from a tunic to like, pretty much everything. Right? Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Uh, the word for beg there, it's not the word for a beggar begging. Like Luke's going to use that word when he talks about blind Bartimaeus later on in the gospel. Rather, it's a word that just means to ask. But this isn't a polite ask, right? This isn't your neighbor coming over and saying, hey, we're, we're out of table sugar. Can we, can we borrow some table sugar? No, this is a forceful ask. Remember the original context of persecution. This is your persecutors taking advantage of you, taking your stuff, confiscating your stuff. Which is why in the second half of verse 30, Jesus specifically refers to one who takes away your goods. But again, Jesus is saying, if that happens, don't worry about your stuff. Don't worry about getting it back. Uh, Trust that God will provide and just keep loving your enemies, doing good to them, blessing them, praying for them. The spirit of enduring the loss of possessions for the sake of Christ on account of the Son of Man, I think it's really clearly captured in Hebrews 10. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. How do you joyfully accept the confiscation of your property? Well, Jesus said, from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And in verse 31, Jesus kind of caps off these illustrations by giving us what we commonly refer to as the golden rule. Right? As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Don't let these illustrations, these specific illustrations, make you think that the application of loving your enemy is just restricted and limited to these particular situations. No, let's go as broad as possible. This is like a catch-all, right? For, For any and every situation, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now notice what Jesus is not saying here. He's not just saying, don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. That would be included in what Jesus is saying, but Jesus is saying a lot more than that. He's also not saying, as others are doing to you, do so to them. He's taking his disciples beyond this kind of simple, retributive, reciprocal mindset that dominated in that day. Disciples, you are not to base your love for others based on how they treat you. And he's also not saying, do good things to others, hoping that they'll do good things to you in return. To do good things to others in hopeful expectation that they'll just return the favor, well, that's just kind of like a veiled utilitarianism. And here's the thing, if they're your enemy, in all likelihood, you can be as nice as you want to them, they're not going to be nice to you. 
And what Christ is calling his disciples to do here is to truly love their enemies, to do good to them, bless them, pray for them, even when they're doing the exact opposite to you and there really looks like there's not going to be any change. However you wish that they would treat you, like in this perfect world, even when they don't treat you that way, especially when they don't treat you that way, well, you do that good to them. And friends, that kind of mindset, that requires an incredible trust in God. It requires an incredible trust in God as the judge of all the earth who will do what is right, who will right all wrongs, that vengeance belongs to him and that he will repay. And so we don't have to take matters into our own hands, regardless of how often and how severely we're wronged, because God is just and God will do what is right. And God will be with his people in their unjust suffering. That's what Jesus calls his people to do. To continue entrusting themselves to him who judges justly. Point number two, illustrations. Which brings us to point number three, contrasts. This will be the shortest of our points, because I think it's pretty straightforward, right? In verses 32 to 34, Jesus presents us with three contrasts. This is how you're going to be different from the world if you obey these commands. If you love those who love you, verse 32, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. That's number one. Number two, if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And number three, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. I mean, just think about the, like the worst people who have ever lived. Like serial killers and terrorists and, and people like that. Well, even they love those who love them, and they do good to those who do good to them, like whether it's their family or uh, their friends or even one another. Like basic reciprocity that exists within even the most wicked of sinners right, who see the, the, the love and the, the doing good from this self-serving, self-interested perspective of, okay, what am I going to get out of this? Is that person going to love me back? Well, if so, then I'll love them. And so Jesus' point is that it doesn't really take any special grace from God to love someone who's going to love you back. And so if you, right, disciples, if you limit your love and you limit your doing good to that, well, in what way are you any different in your love from the world around you? All you've done is taken that concept of reciprocal love and you've moved it from the outside world, maybe into the church. And so the objects of your love are now different, but the nature of your love as this self-interested, selfishly motivated, self-serving love, well, the nature of your love is basically the same as that of unregenerate sinners. So I think these are some fair questions for every believer in this room to ask. How is my love for others different from the love of unbelievers around me? How is the way in which I love others different from that really nice and kind and friendly unbeliever that I know? How is my love for others different now that I'm saved compared to the love for others that I had when I was an unbeliever? Well, is there 
a marked difference? If not, well, what's going on? Point number three, contrast. That brings us to point number four, motive. So Jesus has given us the command, love your enemies. And then he's illustrated it with a few scenarios. When you're being insulted, when your stuff's being taken, how do you love your enemies? And he's given us the contrast. Here's how you're loving your enemies, how that should differentiate you from unbelievers around you. And now he finishes with the motive. Why should we do these things? And in one sense, it's very obvious why we ought to do these things. It's because Jesus said so. If you're going to call yourself his disciple, you've got to do what he says. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so in one sense, like, Jesus doesn't have to say anything more. He doesn't have to give us a further motive or further motivation. Like, we ought to obey simply because he has spoken. But Jesus does say more. He graciously points his disciples to the big picture reason why we ought to love our enemies. Look at verse 35. Your reward will be very great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You will be sons of the Most High. And just to be clear, Jesus is not saying that by loving your enemies, you will become sons of the Most High. Now, that's a, a work salvation that completely goes against everything Jesus taught. Now, salvation is by grace. It's a free gift from God and changing our hearts so that the spiritually dead sinner would come to trust in Christ alone. Our salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. But a mark of that salvation a fruit of that salvation, a proof of that salvation, a result of that salvation, is that one who previously could do nothing but hate his enemies can now, by God's grace, love them. And so it's not that you will become sons of the Most High by loving your enemies. It's that you will show yourselves to be sons of the Most High by loving your enemies. You will demonstrate for all who are watching that God is your father by resembling him and looking like him. Look, daddy, it's Asher. What four-year-old Abby is illustrating on that day, it's a fact that all of us know to be true. Children look like their parents. And that's exactly what Jesus appeals to here in motivating his disciples to love their enemies. When you love your enemies, you look just like your father. You resemble him, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. How is God kind to the ungrateful and the evil? Well, he gives life to all who live, right? Grateful or ungrateful, evil or godly, he gives the gift of life. 
And he showers common grace upon all mankind, regardless of whether they worship him or they spit in his face. Common grace is like air to breathe and the sun to shine and food to eat. It's not like only believers have access to beautiful sunsets and fresh oxygen. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. But our gracious and kind Heavenly Father, well, he goes way beyond even all that in loving his enemies, does he not? He gives the gospel to his enemies. He grants salvation to those who have rebelled against him. He reconciles those who hated him to himself at the cost of his son. Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the two verses later in verse 10, while we were enemies, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were his enemies, he saved us, right? The gospel is not about people who turned their lives around, they turned their sinful life around, and they went to God to seek righteousness and forgiveness and salvation. No, the gospel is God taking those who were his enemies, who wanted nothing to do with him, who were headed straight to hell because of their sin, and God radically rescuing them and bringing them to himself. And so you see, the the command to love our enemies, friends, it starts with the gospel. Because the gospel is God's grand display of loving those who hated him and cursed him and abused him. By sending Jesus to take on human flesh, to die for the sins of his people, so that all who would place their trust in him might be saved. As Jesus takes upon himself all the sins of his people and suffers the wrath of God that we deserve, that we might be made righteous, right? That is how God shows his love for his enemies. That is how God showed his love for us when we were opposed to him. And so you, by his grace, as his child, well, now you have the power in Christ to love others who are your enemies. You be merciful, even as your father is merciful. And as you do that, as you love your enemies, consider how even in the process of dying for our sins, how Jesus loved his enemies perfectly. To the one who struck him on the cheek, well, he offered the other also. Right? Like a sheep, before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his trial, in his crucifixion, in his death, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And his possessions, his clothes, well, they not only took his tunic, they cast lots for it. And of course, at the very end, he prays for those who abused him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So friends, this is where I want to finish this morning. Because we look at this set of commands. It seems so daunting, right? Love my enemies and do good to those who hate me and bless those who curse me. Pray for those who abuse me. Like that, that's a tough list. 
But you see, friends, this is not just a list of like do's and don'ts. This isn't just a bunch of, of rules and regulations that we're to blindly follow. At the end of the day, this is about us as believers who are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, as believers who are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ through the indwelling Holy Spirit, it's us looking more and more like our Father. Right? When we earnestly pursue these things, when we, when we actually do these things, however imperfectly, when we begin to adopt the heart of our merciful Father towards those who would oppose us, well, we're sharing in his merciful and gracious character. We're looking more and more like our Father as sons of the Most High. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be very great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Father, we want to be like you. We want to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, give us grace by the power of your Holy Spirit to live out these difficult teachings that we might reflect your mercy and your grace and your love that we might be merciful even as you are merciful. Father, we pray for any in this room who are even at this moment still your enemy. Father, we pray that they would come to see Christ as their glorious Savior and so be saved today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.